Hello, welcome to uh, Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. Yeah, I'm a, a slightly wet uh, Phil Proctor, but uh, that's the nature of our of our world here. At least it stopped raining in the studio. Yes, because they they it's not that they did anything to the roof. No, but there's a bunch of volunteers lying across the ceiling, absorbing the water. Fantastic. Uh, I know. Well, you know, you have to think. In, in new ways to survive in this world. In honor of the storm, it wasn't a perfect opportunity to have an Englishman as our guest. Well, how do you equate that with the storm? The rain. Oh, rain. Try to keep up, though. Oh, I'm up. sorry. I'll get my, my pun dictionary out. <laughs> we'll have a good old punny time. <laughs> anyway, we have a wonderful guest with us today to, uh, to, to cheer us up and chase the storm clouds away. Actor, writer, and social activist Ian Ruskin. Yes, a, a, a wet Englishman. But thank you so well, much. But that's I just feel common. so at home. You wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't notice that. Every, every Englishman is slightly damp. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that, yeah, Mr. Proctor. Very well, kind of you. Always yes. a warm welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you are English, but you also spent a lot of time, you told us at lunch, uh, in America when you were growing up. Yes, I did. I spent more, until I was 13, I mainly lived in America. Um, then we went back to England. But well, tell me, did, did you have an American accent? You know, you... I, I, I remember... Back in England, having to get rid of certain words, banana. That <laughs> banana. Was, was very hard to say banana. banana. Oh, I see. Um, and so Bandana. Bandana. Tomato. Did you have an American right? accent well, in I, England? I, to some extent, yes, because yeah. I kind of grew up, although my mother always had her English accent. Yes. at home. Mm -hmm. So it was a mix, I yeah. think. And yeah. I do know when I went to drama school, they almost beat me about my American ah. L's and R's ah. being in the back of the R's and things. R. I can't do an American accent to save my life today. <laughs> That's so you're, wild. You're, you're training at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Yes, probably I did. Carried you of all of English American. American. Accents. They tried to beat it out of me. Yes. 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 <laughs> I think they did. You, you speak beautifully. I think they did a great job. Oh, thank you very much. That's ever so kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> and you are, uh, after training, you, you were a veteran of the stage uh, in, in London. You did a lot of plays mm -hmm, there. Yes. And, and you, were um, you doing classical Shakespearean stuff? or A, a whole mix, a of, mix of Shakespeare, Ibsen, playwrights oh, like that. Oh, wonderful. A wonderful Pinter. Edward Bond. I mean, just a whole oh, mix that's of super. wonderful playwrights. But then you came over to the United States and yes. also continued to act. Yes. Mainly I did episodic television. Mm -hmm. This is in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Yep. MacGyver, I did one of those. Yeah. Um, Murder, She Wrote. Um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King was not written by a great playwright. So yeah. it was different, <laughs> right? Let me say, <laughs> and and which led you to what you be have become known for, which was you you were feeling somewhat unfulfilled creatively by these roles you were playing. Yeah, I wonder I, why TV it, wasn't enough. You know, when you go to drama school, you do you do great plays, and by great, right. I mean, I think Noel Coward is a great playwright. Absolutely, but you do whether they're funny or sad or whatever, um, and you you have a sense that you're affecting people you mm -hmm. are moving people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's what i missed that sense of community in a way. connecting yeah that people would leave the theater a bit richer than when they came in mm -hmm. because of the play that's so, right so i always i always felt that way about theater too and i to this day i do that we're telling stories mm -hmm. we're dramatizing stories or and and uh the fact that the people respond to it is so important for us as performers. And sometimes when you get an audience that's, they might be in, oh, we love the play, but they don't, they don't laugh or applaud, you know, as much as most people. Then you play for one another. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great joy yeah, as so well. Yeah, that, of course, is something... I have not done for a long time. Because you're doing a one-man well, show. Well, yes. So this is what's interesting, um, and we're going just a, a little tip here for where we're going with this show is that you have done one-man shows where you research and embody 
what I would say are are true heretics, um, truly, un, <laughs> un, I love it, uh, truly uh, mm. rebellious, brilliant, under mavericks, mavericks, uh, underappreciated in some respects, uh, yes. namely Thomas Paine and Nikola Tesla. So this is really a, a great opportunity for Phil and I because we want to ask Thomas Paine what the heck happened to common sense. And we clearly would like to know what uh, Tesla thinks about having a car company yeah. named after him. And, <laughs> yes. and Nicolai, Nicola, 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 well, Nicola. There's debate about. And he's, there's banana, a, banana. There's a hydrogen powered <laughs> trucking company named after him. That's right. His yes, first yes, name. and yes, the yeah. Nicola or Nicola. Did this happen to you where you embodied these really wonderfully interesting people when you were cast in a, a role of Harry Bridges. Am I correct yes. in that? And, and he was, Harry is a little lesser known than the two others, uh, but he was really an amazing person, uh, a union activist before union activism was a popular. Yes, before popular. Was, it, was Bridges right. American? He was or, Australian. He was Australian. So, so we're going we're to spend the bulk of our time talking about <laughs> Tesla and the quirks of him and and Thomas Paine, who burned every bridge imaginable, even except as, Harry Bridges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, talk about a little bit why you chose. Well, you didn't choose. You were cast, but we we did a performance or a reading, a rehearsed reading, of the Bridges play, not my play, but another play about Bridges, to his union at their convention in downtown Los Angeles, as it happened that year. What union? This is the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Oh, tough, tough crowd. The, the dock workers, the yeah. ones with the big cranes. Oh, yeah. The ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did this, and the audience rose and cheered for 10 minutes. Oh, my really? goodness. And because they loved, they sometimes hated, but they mainly loved Harry Bridges. <laughs> wow. And all these guys came up to me afterwards and said, you're, you're Harry. You look like Harry. You sound like Harry. you, you got to do Harry. And it, it was, and I thought, ah, oh, this is what's been missing for me. Interesting. And that's where that, I mean, it took years it's for me a to. Catalyst. A direct connection. Yeah. And, the, and the, the, yeah, the, I had done something that the audience got yeah. and yeah. inspired them. What was the worthiness of Harry Bridges? Well, he he came to San Francisco. He he'd been a sailor. Um, he had picked up a lot of Marxist ideas. What years? Uh, nineteen eighteen, mm -hmm. nineteen nineteen. Sorry, 19. he arrived in San Francisco. He was born, born in nineteen oh one. Yeah, in in uh, Melbourne. Okay. So he arrives, and he he had, and also he got to know the Wobblies, the I the international the IWW, which yep. was mm -hmm. an American organization, but very radical because a lot of sailors were Wobblies. Mm. So he, he arrived. Well, that's because of the pitch of the ship, you know. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. slide from side to side. That's right. Keep it's it difficult otherwise. to walk like a wobbly kind of way. Yes, right. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's very shaky. Yeah, they oh, were going right. to form the Shakers, but they just shake on right. the Wobblies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he. He, he was unusual in that sense, and he he had a vision. He also had a uh, almost a photographic memory mm. of he read everything of Jack London. He read Marx. He read and read and read. And he he and also Australia, which was the most unionized country in the world at that time. Really. So he said, you know, we should we should be like the post office in Australia. We should be run mm. by the workers. It should, it, that was very, it was mm -hmm. very simple to him. Was he the father of the modern union movement, would you say, here in America? Well, he, ooh, um, uh, well, different unions might have different opinions about yeah. that. Yeah. But I would say he was, he often led the way in terms of the things, he was fighting for a national health care system. He's like a firebrand. Yeah, right? for pensions. Pen, nobody had pensions. Mm. For dental insurance, that was insane. Wow. You know? wow. Um, a, a like guy pulling teeth. Well, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> one guy told me, Harry got up there and said, one day you're going to have dental insurance. And we all said, what you been smoking, Harry? <laughs> uh, nobody else talked like that. Wow. Uh, and then it gradually came to happen. Uh, so he was he – was, revolutionary in oh he sense. must have been a favorite of the captains of industry at the time well no. they no he was they loved him they in did. that he understood that you have to give and take mm -hmm. with an industry that he loved the industry also he was absolutely honest 
Somebody told me if Harry had 20 bucks in his pocket, he was a rich man. Mm. He, you couldn't bribe him. Mm. Um, but if he shook your hand on a deal, you had a deal. It was done. And so the other side liked that. Because they needed their workers to be reasonably content. Yes. I, there are still managements that don't understand that if you, it's sometimes worth paying the workers a little bit more mm-hmm. so they, they really are happy. They stay with you. They don't mm-hmm. leave the company. You don't have to train new people. And they feel a connection. A lot of that became obvious during the the COVID epidemic. And there are many people now who who don't want to return to work for the salary that they, you know. Uh, But Harry Harry was the head of the union for a long time. How many years? 40 years years as president. Wow. Of of a union of truly tough guys. Oh, tough guys. And people have said it was like herding cats. I mean, I know that's a common Mm -hmm. expression. Mm -hmm. But it really, I mean, I've seen them in action. And... And there are stories. When Harry got up to speak, they have a tradition you can go up to the mic on the floor of the hall, line up to have your say. The moment he stood up, there'd be 30 guys there waiting to, have, to tell Harry what they thought. <laughs> but he, he loved that. He, that was what he thought a union should be. And the unions have been systematically dismantled over the years. Mm-hmm. Starting from the Reagan years. But it was interesting the other day, uh, that Senate hearing, where mm-hmm. that Republican senator uh, who's a wealthy... Oh, the Teamsters. The Teamsters' head was testifying. Scrooge McDuck? He took this plutocrat yeah, to, yeah. to task and said, you want to go outside? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he held the upper hand. He just yeah. So it's still a fight that continues today. Oh, yes. And, and there's hope. You know, there's hope with Starbucks and yeah. Amazon. And I mean, it goes up and down. But there, there are new people They're wanting still fighting to be the fight. in unions. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. To unionize. So uh, this was your inspiration to what basically do a one-person show. That was like one performance that you did, Well, right? yeah. See, what happened was this was a cast of 12. Mm-hmm. And everybody loved it. And nobody could afford it to put mm. it on as a union mm-hmm. production. I see. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what if I wrote a one-man play? Now, uh-huh. it took me five years to even start writing. Wow. To get the, up the confidence. But, um, yeah, that was where the idea came. It to was, beat the unions. Sorry? To beat the unions because you couldn't do the 12 man. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of ironic <laughs> that, um, you know, e- equity, God bless them, I mean, but uh, th- nobody would put up the money. Right. And it was a play about a union troublemaker, you know, who's <laughs> accused of being a communist. So, but for the one man play, it's uh, cheaper. And, and you, you did this for how long? And how did how did how did your first performance go? And what was that all about? I've done it for done Harry for twenty years now. 20 done years. maybe four hundred times. Wow. Um, the first performance was in Seattle. In thank goodness, in a little tiny kind of black box. Yeah, I did three shows because then I went came back to L.A. Went to um, San Pedro mm-hmm. to the Warner Grand Theater, which is an incredible. 1,500-seat theater. I've, I've performed in some okay. of those great, With, with a tremendous great. union community. Oh, I, I did this one-man show on this stage bigger than most theaters to a 1,000 longshoremen. Oh, wow. And it wow. was just incredible. Oh, buddy. It was amazing. Now, I, the, these shows are recorded. I mean, is there, is there any way for people to see this? If they oh, don't? yeah, we made, we've made films of the Bridges and the Pain plays, and I... Haskell Wexler was my director. Oh, I worked with I mean, him too. Wow. You cannot get anyone better in the world. The best director of So can people find the these now? Yeah, they're, um, if you go to ruskinproductions.com, mm-hmm. which is my overall company, um, there's a, a page called The Shop. In The Shop, you can get all kinds of things, including these. So, so the Harry Bridges thing struck a nerve. It, it took mm. off. This is what you realized ignited you and excited you. And then you took on another utopian, if you will, uh, rebel rouser, heretic, uh, Thomas Paine, the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the father of the American Revolution. Uh, yes. What a fascinating person to have done such great things and yet to be so reviled. I mean, just... just His oh. life is the, uh, a roller coaster like nobody else's. Yeah. I mean, he was... His friends were Franklin and Jefferson and Washington, and he mixed with the French court and all that. Mm-hmm. When he came back to America, finally, the, the, towards the end of his life, the people spat at him. He <laughs> criticized the American Revolution. 
It was he did not <coughs> succeed in the way he wanted. And then he wrote Rights of Man, which mm -hmm. was very much about bringing down monarchies. He really a, had it out for King George. Oh, well, he had it out for monarchies, the institution of monarchy. And Rights of Man was about hu rights, human rights also, when nobody talked about human rights from yeah. peasants. And, and then, then he attacked George Washington, which was like shooting yeah. God. Don't do that. And, and then he had A's of Reason, where he basically took the Bible apart page by page. Mm. So by the time he got back to America, <laughs> he was mainly hated. He was an interesting person in, in that uh, timing is everything. 1774, mm. he's introduced to Ben Franklin in, in London. Yes. And yep. they hit it off. Ben Franklin had a publishing concern, newspaper. Yep. And he somehow convinced Thomas Paine to come over to the U.S. Well, yeah, he is wrote that... letters of recommendation ah. for Paine, which is, is Benjamin Franklin was the most famous man in America. That's right. Yeah. So that's a gold stamp. Is yeah. I do want to just mention that I have played both Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine in the Pups of Liberty, uh, a Benjamin Franklin. It's went to the dogs that production. Yeah. But but yeah. It, the Pups of Liberty, I recommend to people. It's it it's created by these two lovely people to tell the story of the American Revolution to children through the use of dogs. I'm going to check it out. The, the red cats and, yeah. you know, her yeah. coming. Anyway, just what a yeah, quick aside. So, so Thomas Paine yeah. was already a rebel rouser and an idealist to the extreme, and Ben Franklin saw something in him and suggested that he come over because the action was in the colonies at this point, mm -hmm. two years before the actual revolution. And as I understand it, he came over to the U.S., and he was a great publisher, and he turned around a, 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 a failing publisher, a, a newspaper, a magazine. and Well, he, yeah, he worked for, uh, it's called the Pennsylvania Magazine. Yeah. Mm. And it was a magazine full of, like, illustrations of, of deer and fairies and stuff. Mm. And he started writing articles. He was hired as the editor uh, about getting rid of the monarchy, which, of course, was treason. The, the publication, the, the, uh, it, went, it became a very popular magazine. And then he wrote... Um, common sense. Now, mm. now at the time, to help people understand the context of common sense, pamphlets, this was a 47-page pamphlet. This mm. was sort of the media of the time. It was easily written, published, and distributed. And dangerous. You know, so many people did not read, so people were reading to groups of people yes. and it spread well, see that you could have done that for I a could living have, I would have had I could, at the taverns I could have gone from tavern <laughs> sure. to tavern from tavern to tavern <laughs> until I finally fell down crawling from <laughs> pub to pub you know? <laughs> this is how things got started two years before the revolution mm -hmm. so he was at the right place at the right time and Ben Franklin was prescient enough to see that potential yes, yeah so um, that's how Thomas Paine got set up in the United States as an Englishman right and what, what Paine did what made him dangerous mm -hmm. was he wrote in language that the common man will mm -hmm. call him could understand he wrote in short simple sentences mm -hmm. you know there were lots of people writing about the enlightenment where yes. the, a sentence would take an entire page yes by the time you get to the end you've forgotten what it was about yeah like german yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> but he he just said simple things and that's why he was dangerous because the average mm. farmer and indentured servant would r hear it or read it either mm -hmm, way and mm -hmm. and understand it and right. say yes this makes sense so he's a revolutionary oh absolutely. in the sense yes. of of promoting this idea of independence so he was dangerous to obviously the british right but also to there were plenty of people in america Monarchists, who were loyalists and sure. royalists and mm -hmm. who wanted nothing to do with revolution, who had a very nice, comfortable life, thank you very much, mm -hmm. rich merchants and people who had a nice relationship with England. And, um, yeah, I mean, the idea of, of fighting England was beyond a lot of people's understanding. It would be a, a disruption of trade, which mm -hmm. was the life's blood of many of the early Americans. Absolutely. Know. Then, of course, when Paine said there should be no slaves. Exactly. Yeah, he was an abolitionist. Oh, yes. Before that was a thing. Yes. Yeah, he was one of the first. So, really. in a sense, he was a futurist. Yes. He, in, in the 1790s, he wrote Agrarian Justice, which is basically a rough draft of the New Deal. 
of Roosevelt. Ah, mm. ah. And in fact, on the Social Security website, they have the entire text of agrarian justice on the website. That's wonderful. And he wrote that in 1790s. Common Sense is still regarded as one of the great pieces of literature. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, everybody hated him. Well, it's, he attacked God. And by then, America was a very puritanical Theistic. country. How did he attack God? He went through the Bible, page one. That's disgusting. That should be cut out. That's the work of the devil. That's how he did it, basically. Wow. wow. He, he was a deist, as were almost all the founding uh, fathers. Yes, right. And he believed in a power that created everything. He was not, mm -hmm. he was not uh, an atheist or an agnostic. He was a deist. He didn't believe you have to have men yeah. in robes mm. to tell you about God. He didn't like the institutionalized power grab that came with organized religion. Absolutely. He said he want to talk to God, go for a walk in the woods. That's where mm. God is. So Native so. Americans probably oh, had a great loved, appreciation he, he for that. He felt like a brother to them, basically. Huh. Yeah, it was, and, and there are, you know, there's a wonderful book called Nature's God, which is, because that was one of the ideas of in the Enlightenment. But again, you had these 200-word sentences <laughs> that the average guy would tell, forget you this. Get, you get bored. Whereas Payne would write very short little statements. Mm -hmm. but so he was a great communicator. Oh, I think he was, the word propagandist doesn't have a good reputation no, now but today. it used to and i think he was the greatest propagandist in the ever in the english language is it truthful to say that common sense the pamphlet is proportionately the greatest selling piece of literature ever yes I th they say it is it's something like the equivalent of selling 60 million copies of a book now wow it's almost in bible territory well, yes, there is a point to play where I say even I would not challenge the Bible. Mm. <laughs> but after the Bible, yeah, I think it was proportionally the greatest selling book in American history. So what happened to him? I mean, he, he ended up going back to France, I understand, correct? Well, he went to France and England. And he went back and forth between England and France. And he was, of course, he uh, annoyed people there and was incarcerated as well at one point. Yes, right? yes. Or in France? Was, yeah. But, oh. 10 months in Luxembourg prison, which was a very nice prison, but nevertheless... As prisons it's, it's go. A, yes. It's it, a B&B it, B &B now, actually. Yeah. No, it's a palace again now. <laughs> I've been there. Oh, it is. Actually, it might be a B&B. That was because I was there years ago, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did he do to get jailed in Luxembourg? Well, technically, he was an Englishman, and France was at war with England, mm -hmm. and he was arrested for being an Englishman. So it was an internment of sorts. Sorry? It was an internment camp. Well, sense. yes, but there were lots of English who were not arrested. But what he did mm. in the French assembly, where he was a delegate uh -huh. representing Calais, he argued to spare the life of the king. And that did not go down well. Mm. So he was an anti-institutionalist. Yes, he said every monarch should be given the distinct privilege of becoming private citizens. Wow. Mm. Don't chop off their heads. Just make them private citizens. Okay, so he annoyed the power structure. Yes. <laughs> and the power structure influenced public opinion against him. Is that how it went? I mean, were the people were the people disgusted with the him at some point? people in France, I don't think you would say were against him in the way that the people of America were. But that was because of the religious angle. Mainly, yes. Because already, I mean, in France, there was that division of church and state. Yes. Which was pretty serious mm -hmm. and is still there today fundamentally. Whereas I say America was a puritanical nation by 1800. Right. He was British born so he couldn't become president. It w was that the constitution even back in the revolutionary days? I think so. In fact, when he, when he returned to America in 1802, they wouldn't let him vote because they said, you're an Englishman. Oh, that must have really... And he said, I started the revolution. That's very <laughs> ironic, isn't it? <laughs> he was was so, he an angry guy? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, in a way, yes. He did say, I am a citizen of the world, mm -hmm. which is sounds great, except it means you're not pledging your allegiance to any, to any country. any particular country. So everybody rejects you. <laughs> you know, that's no. what I said to my wife, Melinda, <laughs> when we were courting. I'm quite seriously. She asked me uh, something about myself, and I said I consider myself a citizen of the world. Well, there you go. And, and I understand that. Now, these are wonderful ideas. How have you embodied them in a play? Uh, you know, how is it one act? 
Yes. Okay, and you come on as Payne, or yes. do you introduce him? No, I come you on. You are. I come on Thomas as Payne. Payne. I always think with a one-man play, yes. don't give an intermission because they might not come back. Of so, course. So get it done. They're, they're, my plays are all around 70 minutes. That's, that's And that's about fine. long enough, I yeah. think. Um, yeah, I come on as Payne, and Payne, they're all slightly different, but Payne kind of comes out of the shadows Mm. Whereas Harry Bridges is set in 1965 in his life. But with Payne, he comes back to tell you his story. Mm -hmm. But I just come out and tell the story, basically. Oh, Do you annoy the audience? Can't wait to see it. Annoy them? Yeah. Well, not as much as I sometimes hope. Uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> the thing is, most of my audiences, of their lovely audiences, they already love pain. I, I, I want to do pain for some people who do not love pain. Mm, but it's hard to get them to come. Ah, right, right. But I'm working on that. So. Yeah, but pain yeah. was a pain. That's what yeah. he said. Right. My best joke in the play is he, when he, he enlisted and he was made a major, so he became a major pain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Massive applause. Is there a particular passage that you like to read that, that's on that's part of the show. Give us a taste. Is, I'll make a, a very quick... Here we have the sound of rustling paper. He is actually um, looking at a script. This is from... Uh, this is like a, small, a short page from Rights of Man, part first, written in England. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Paine. Yeah. Every individual is born equal in rights with his contemporary. It is the living not the dead that are to be accommodated. When man ceases to be, his power and his wants cease with him. Governments have no rights, only duty to their citizens. War. War is the common harvest of all those who participate in the division and expenditure of public money. In despotic governments, wars are the effect of pride, but in those governments in which they become the means of taxation, they acquire a more permanent habitualness. Taxes are not raised to carry on wars, but rather wars are raised to carry on taxes. <laughs> War is the art of conquering at home. Ooh, that's so pertinent. Oh. I read a quote from Winston Churchill in the latest issue of The Week, a magazine that I love uh, to, to read every week. And he basically in that, said that in this little quote. But he, war is perpetual to man, he said. You know, and that, uh, and that even before there were any institutions or anything, there was warfare mm -hmm. between people. You know, and, and obviously he understands that. And just recently, our president uh, uh, has asked for an increased budget mm -hmm. for the military. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely brilliant, the way that he uh, understood yeah, that. Yeah, and the line, war is the art of conquering at home. That's right. It doesn't matter whether you conquer the enemy. Propaganda, again. Yeah. Right? Well, it's the outside threat that always is the greatest tool. Yes, to, Margaret Thatcher yeah. was about to lose being the uh, the Prime Minister of England. She, her ratings were terrible. Mm -hmm. And the Falkland War, she got this huge majority in yeah. the election because mm -hmm. we beat the Argentinians. It was the biggest anticipated we war because it took two weeks to sail down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you had a slight delay. Yeah, but, you know. Move the penguins. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what was, uh, if, if, if you will uh, allow the expression, the square up uh, with Thomas Paine? He ended up dying in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Grove Street, building's not there, but he died there. But it yes. wasn't a simple death, was it? I mean, it, it, it didn't end there. Well, no, because, <clears throat> I mean, he, he died there at the, as, at the home of a supporter. That was very important to him. But he, he died, and um, uh, he wanted to be buried in a Quaker graveyard, and the Quakers refused. Really? <clears throat> because he had criticized them in the revolution for not joining the war. My for remaining as pacifists. So he was buried at, on the land of his farm in New Rochelle. So that's, you think that's the end of the story. So William Cobbett, who was a man who hated pain above all others, mm. had this change of mind. And 10 years later, he dug the bones up 
and he took them to England. Uh, he announced uh, the customs in Liverpool. He had the the mortal remains of the immortal Thomas Paine. And on the way to London, the, the other little story I love is in Bolton, which is near Manchester. The town crier announced him passing through the town, for which the town crier was put in prison for three months. Good. So, Just for announcing so, it. Yeah. Wow. So Cobbett's idea was that they would build a statue, but he would uh, he would exhibit the bones to raise money right. to build a giant statue of Thomas Paine. And nobody could care less at that point about giving three pence to Thomas Paine's bones. <laughs> and then the bones disappeared. No one knows where they are to this day. Is that right? They've gone. They've disappeared. Um, Make no bones about it. Yeah. <laughs> there was, but there was some speculation that you mentioned earlier. That was well, uh, the, actually, there is, there is a woman in Australia who claims to have his jawbone, but the people disregard that. They think that's crazy. <laughs> but there is also a story that a lot of English nobility got hold of some of the bones and had them ground up as dust and put into the soles of their shoes, into the heels, so they could step on Thomas Paine as they walked. What a hero. I mean, it's so appropriate that he was a citizen of the world and his Quite. bones disappeared into who knows the world, where. somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, very, very what, strange. What, what year was that that the bones were brought? That would have been eight, 1819, roughly. Okay. 1819, okay. 1920. Just to get a context. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So here's a man that we look up to as the father of the American Revolution. And to this day, <laughs> if and, you think about it. And he is, yeah. except we, he's not taught as being a founding father. People don't really know that. No, that's right. Well, because he was, no. more of a, he was more of an agitator and yeah, a propagandist. Yeah, he was working class. Oh. Founding fathers were all fairly rich. They all had land and estates, and they were mm -hmm. well off, mostly. Payne really had nothing. Um, he was English. He was 37 when he arrived. So he was an outsider, definitely. Mm -hmm. He was the ultimate rebel. Yes, I think absolutely. The ultimate rebel. He was speaking truth to power, even back then. He had a great influence, you know. Uh, in, That's in, what you get for being woke, even yeah. back then. <laughs> <laughs> How do you end your pain piece uh, oh you know you see that's you that's brought him question. back from the shadows and well it was the hardest part to write because the pain's end was not a happy one right so i and i didn't want to leave people oh, that was a oh, depressed yeah but pain was always optimistic so i end the play with a if you like an appeal from pain to make the world a better place that you, you can still do that today, like I tried to do in my life. That's lovely. And then I, then we go to blackout. <laughs> that's and look where it got me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you mustn't say that. <laughs> now it you, is, and you have been uh, a citizen of the world. You've been touring this play all over the. Yes. Yeah. How, how is the response in modern day response? I mean, obviously, you you address both these, this duality of this man. Well, it's been it's interesting in England because I've done. Th now, three little tours. I've got a bigger one coming up. I'm actually going to, this is, oh, I'm going to yes, perform pain for the English Parliament hmm. and the Scottish Parliament. Oh, wow. Which is, I mean, not in the chambers, right. but in a big room there, which is going to be really interesting. Oh, yeah. that must be. Very interesting. I mean, I'm also going to perform in people's museums and in theaters and all kinds of places. Well, but, you must actually feel uh, a, a terrific kind of a glow uh, it, d performing oh, in historic oh, piece, I, in historic places yes I, well i'm gonna i'm also gonna perform at benjamin franklin house in london which is where franklin where Payne went and franklin wrote the letters of recommendation i'm going to be in the room oh, where they met where they wrote where he wrote those letters in the room wow. where it happened yeah. i mean how, you can't really get better than that. No, that's, that's it's wonderful. It's just amazing. Wonderful. And hopefully someday you'll perform here in the Los Angeles area where people can see this. Performances of pain? Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm anywhere, all the time. Have you performed in Los Angeles? I have, yes. I mean, I we did. We actually did a run of the pain play and the Bridges play, oh God, like um, like nine years ago mm -hmm. when I had just written it in, in two little theaters. And that was great. Mm -hmm. um, and I've performed for, you know, I perform in community colleges and right, unions and places like that. Um, I would love to do more public performances. I mean, in, th in yes, a theater. Yes, oh, yes. Yes. that's great. Love it yeah. if that could happen. 
let's move on to a really fascinating character, at least for me, yeah. uh, Mr. Tesla. Yes, oh, <laughs> Again, another underdog in a way, another brilliant, gifted, futurist, visionary who uh, s stuck so hard to his principles that he paid a, a big price for it and annoyed the wrong people like Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. Well, he uh, was a threat to him. I actually played Thomas Edison in a, a radio adaptation of the story of Tesla uh, before a live audience at the Geffen Playhouse. Mm. And, and uh, he was a threat to um, Edison in many ways because Edison had so many patents. And it basically had to do with the broadcast of electricity, didn't it? Yes, the great battle, the battle, the war of the currents mm -hmm. was between Tesla and Edison. Edison believed in direct current. Right. And Tesla believed in alternating current. AC. Which DC. allowed for much more efficient transmission of power. Well, yes, DC, DC is very safe, but you can only send it about three miles. And then mm -hmm. you have to go into another charge. Well, that's station. why they call it Washington, D.C. <laughs> so <laughs> alternating current. Solve that. You, alternating current goes really almost as far as you want it to. I mean, right. the world is lit with alternating current. So That's Edison, right. when he saw the threat coming, did an ugly, ugly propaganda oh, move where he, where he electrocuted oh. an elephant as a stunt to yes. show how dangerous Tesla's AC was. I mean, the reason we have Hollywood in large part is because they had to get away from Edison and his predatory patent well, Edison behavior. made early movies. In, he made in, a yes, movie of Frankenstein. Pa on the Palisades, the cliffs of the Palisades mm, over yeah. by Fort Lee. And he was so oppressive yep. that they just went out to California to get away from yep. him. He also, he paid a quarter to kids to bring him stray cats and dogs that he also electrocuted. With AC. Yeah, with AC. Jesus. Was that and like a hobby with him? <laughs> he was just, it was a desperate Bring attempt. Strays, to, the war had all, he'd already lost the war, but he had to keep trying. Oh, oh yeah. boy, that sure yeah. says I'm a lot so sorry you had to play him, but you survived oh, well. very well. <laughs> Thank goodness. I was just acting. Unfortunately, have about 15 minutes, and I really want to pack in Tesla here. Right. Now, if you could just briefly tell us where he came from. Uh, what brought him to America, and how did he find himself working for Edison as a young man in Edison's lab, and how this all started? Okay, well, he was, he was born in what is now Croatia, which was sort of regarded as being part of Serbia at the time, which is why there is Serbia claims him today as being Serbian, ah. and Croatia now is saying, hey, wait a minute, he was hey. born. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a fight That's going wonderful. on there. He came on a ship to New York with a letter of recommendation. He'd worked for Edison's head man in France who recommended Tesla to Edison. Ah. Tesla arrived, apparently his, his money was stolen on, on the, the voyage and he had four pennies in his pocket oh, is the story. Which he'd is the beginning of his up and downs financially. Yeah, yes, right. And he walked to Edison's laboratory yes. and introduced himself and he had the letter and he, he started working for Tesla Yep. For Edison, Edison yeah. from that, for that Edison. day, mm -hmm. they had a big bust up. Now, this is a story, there is some disagreement, but Ed, uh, Tesla said he could improve Edison's dynamos on ships and things and mm. generators. And Edison said, if you could do that, I'll pay you $50,000. Tesla worked for over a year. He, he would work like 16 to 18 hours a day, mm. and he did it. And he, the story is he went to Tesla and said, I'd like my money now. And Tesla said, oh, Edison, Edison, said, I'm yeah, sorry. Right. Edison said, that's just American humor. When you're oh, an American, no. you'll, you'll oh, understand. Funny guy. Oh, he did. Funny guy. So um, Tesla wow. said F you and uh, went left and actually spent two years digging ditches for t for Edison's wiring. Oh, good heavens. And then finally for like two cents a day or something crazy? Or he made, uh, I think he might have made a dollar a day. But dollar he, a day. Not, and, and Tesla did not like being in dirt either. So yeah. that was hard. And he was a tall man, very he thin. He was tall, slim. And strange sleeping and, and eating habits. He was a peculiar, he was an eccentric. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, eccentric's yes, a nice word, yeah. yeah he, <laughs> yeah. he had uh, aversions to germs. Um, he was kind of obsessed with the number three. Hmm. Um, he had a, he wore gloves a lot of the time. He couldn't bear pearls. I, I still don't know why he mm. couldn't bear a woman wearing pearls. 
Um, he would sleep often. He would do these 20-minute what, what are called power naps. Mm -hmm. Power naps. But he would do those over three days and just keep yes. working. He, he had... Yeah, he once worked supposedly 84 hours straight or something. Oh, like yeah, that. I think he worked, yeah, something like that once because yeah. he had to finish something. He usually worked alone, maybe with one assistant. Um, and he would, when he would get to his hotel, he always lived in hotels in New York. Mm. Hardly ever paid the bills, but he lived in hotels yes. until he got kicked out. He would run next. up the equivalent of half million dollar bills and then yeah, move yeah, and then to they, the next he one. Said, oh, I'll go somewhere else. You'd yeah. think they would have used Bell's technology to call each other. <laughs> yeah. I did that. <laughs> By the way, do you know what what uh, Edison wanted people to say when they picked up the phone? What? Ahoy. Instead of hello. Ahoy. He wanted them to say ahoy. Huh. That didn't go too well. No. <laughs> you know, I, I read a, what, a very sad story, if it's true, about Edison, that there was a point where after Ed, when he was quite the 50th anniversary of his light bulb or something, there was going to be this big celebration mm -hmm. in New York of Edison. And he went to the train station to get on the train to go. And he never got on. And the train left and he went home. That's what I've read. <laughs> as if there was something in him that he couldn't quite go and have everybody clapping and but he has a hotel in new york but tesla right uh, who uh never married yet in the occasional social setting what impressed the ladies oh yes he had lots of ladies after mm. so did did he, do you think that he had a a, a normal sexual appetite that well, he just, just didn't uh, want to get into relationships that's that's a controversial question um i'm pretty sure he never had sexual relations with a woman. Mm. Mm. Um, after that, it gets more murky. He did say how a man cannot make great inventions when he has a wife and a family. They're too distracting. But a pigeon. Oh, he did love his pigeon. He did love yes. That was so, really interesting. <laughs> of course, he had a relationship with a female pigeon. Evidently, yes. that he claimed to have a a real relationship with. I don't think it got physical. No, but but this pigeon flew into his his hotel room with a broken wing. Is mm -hmm. the story mm -hmm. that he tells, and he he healed her wing, mm -hmm. and then she flew off. And then he would he go to the park every day to feed pigeons. He walked ten to thirteen miles a day. Evidently, he was a big walker. Yes, he walked way. a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But this pigeon was white, and this pigeon would come to him particularly, and. Mm -hmm. He said that also th then there came to a, a point where she flew into his hotel room one night. He said with a, a light coming out of her uh, eyes brighter than any light I have ever produced and died. And he said something in my life died. And I've talked to other uh, inventors. Like, how do you get your inspiration? <clears throat> Some I've, It's been described to me as just literally a download. He would see light in his mind's eye, and this was some sort of a transmission to him, or at least a, mm -hmm. a thought process or, or an epiphany. He was a brilliant mathematician. They thought he cheated in school because he was so right. good at yes. calculations. Yep. And so he would get this inspiration, this energy, if you will, that, he rep that represented light to him. And then it was just like he, he, all, the, all the dimensions, all the specs Every, were all there. That he designed things in his head. And yeah. he said, to put it down on paper was simple. I just drew it. Many, but many, it all, many. Uh, and he would not only design it, he would let it run in his head oh, to see where yeah. it would wear out. Interesting. Beautiful. And he was, many composers have said the yeah. same yes. thing. Yes. You know? yeah, Hitchcock. Hitchcock said the same thing. Once that he got the, 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 the story in his head, it, yeah. it, he was done with it. He yeah, well, you know, I, I use the music <laughs> of Mozart in the play okay because mozart would would write a symphony in one go yeah hardly yeah. any corrections at all yeah nothing crossed out uh one of the big things is this notion of wirelessly transmitting energy and he built two magnificent structures yes one on long island new york and uh one in colorado I think when he was skipping on a hotel bill. He, yeah, yeah. yeah. With this, there's that famous photograph of him with the sparks flying yes. all around him in the arcs. And he actually blew out the local substation out there. Yes, yes. Um, tell us, uh, we, in, the, in the time we have left, 
perhaps give us a little montage of these wonderful things that he did. Well, he invented the alternating current induction motor. He, that he invented, and that is the machine that runs just about everything that moves in the world. So that's one thing. Um, the, the wireless electricity, I mean, he basically invented radio, uh, x-rays. I mean, there's a huge list. And, Mar- and all of these things happened about the same time when it was emerging and the other people like Marconi. Who um, was his assistant was, for quite a while. <laughs> he, somehow he got the credit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it, yeah, it's, it's a long, complicated thing that. But, but the, the wireless electricity, he believed that if you could either find the resonance of the earth, of the ground you could send electricity over vast distances, or he believed that if you could get it up into the ionosphere, you could send it vast distances. So in other words, mm. whatever was conductive. Yes. Now, the physicists today still say that it would not have gone very far. It would take too much energy to, to send it. it. Yeah. So that's open to debate. He never got a chance because they blew up they, well, they blew up Walton Cliff. The they yeah. tore, tore down Colorado. Was, those were real estate venturists in 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 Colorado. No, no, in in Long Island. Oh no, it's because he owed money to Morgan. Oh, and he couldn't get any more. And Morgan, he, he just said tear it down. But he also talked about cosmic energy, and to me, cosmic energy is what is called nuclear fusion. My goodness. And if we ever achieve nuclear fusion, mm-hmm. the world will totally change. That's then right. we've tapped into that resonance that you yeah, talking about. Yeah, but we're getting closer. Yes, we are. For the first time, they've actually had more energy come out than put in, but it's only right. tiny, tiny bits. But um, Tesla talked about, he, he said there will be no need for coal, oil, gas, any of that. He now said that. Me, now, I, see, there's I, a parallel to Thomas Paine. He just, yes. he just completely uh, annoyed Absolutely. the wrong people. Is that, is Absolutely. That your fancy? He talked about getting rid of the oil industry, the copper industry, because mm. you'd have no wires, and wires are made of copper. That's right. right. That was a huge industry. Coal, They're still trying to resolve yeah, that yes, issue. Yes, yes. So he wanted all that gone. He said, we don't need that. We just need cosmic energy, and it's there. Wow. We, we just and then there was this controversy over um, – now, he did have apparently over three – around 300 patents. 300. 300 even? Yeah. And, and, but he had something that was maligned by the press or misrepresented by the press, this uh, teleforce, this, this uh, sort of magical beam weapon, he said. That oh, we, yes. The, 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 what he, the, the death peace beam. or death, death beam. Yeah, he which, said it was never a beam. It was projectiles. It was like a cannon yeah. that fired out I, um, highly charged particles that La- would laser. take laser. down a plane, like a laser. Like yeah. a laser. And he was, that was ignored. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, the Navy huh. are now developing a laser beam for that purpose. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, I mean, he 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 tr- predicted he he wanted to create radar, and the huh. person who said no to that was the man in charge of naval research by the name of Thomas Edison. No, oh, yes. What a surprise. Oh, so you know, <laughs> you know, interesting. He also said that he did not believe in telepathy. Uh, telepathy was not he, – he was quoted as saying, suppose I made up my mind to murder you. In a second, you would know it. Now, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> he said, by what process did the mind get at all this? That was his quote. To well, I, that's new to me. Okay. There's always something new with, with Tesla. Well, Are he, you constructing yeah. your play right well, now? Well, it's because... basically written. I'm uh-huh, but you haven't the... performed it yet. I've performed it. Two or three times oh, good. over okay. a, a number of years, actually, that I go back oh, to the drawing board. Oh, I see. Very good. It's mainly cues now. Because the other thing I will say about Tesla, which is not usual in the films, I believe he was a very religious man in mm. his own particular way. Mm. And I believe everything he did, he saw as in service of God and of bringing man and nature together. Mm-hmm. That's what he saw well, his life the as being. Well, the deist line. It's again, like the deist, it? yes. Wow. It's so interesting, the connections between Bridges and Payne and Tesla. They keep coming up. That's yeah. wonderful. And, and in his demise in, was it 1943? 43. He had now, he was pretty much broke. 
-hmm. was in a hotel room famously in in the New Yorker Hotel on 8th Avenue. Um, He was evidently, there was some sort of arrangement where one of the huge corporations that spawned from his invention took care of him till till the end. Yeah, Westinghouse. Westinghouse, okay. So... um, but then his death was under mysterious circumstances. I mean, maybe it's all mythology, but that after, <clears throat> soon after he died, his, although he lost much of his research early on in mm. that fire in his lab, uh, which wasn't, wasn't suspicious. It, mm. it, we don't quite we don't know. know why. But when he died, his safe at, in his hotel room was emptied out. Oh, Is that well, true? Is, that, is, that, is there any truth the, to well, that? The government sealed the room and went... Basically, took almost everything in the room to a naval base, where they kept it until 1956, going through all the papers. Area 52. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mainly looking for the death ray. Holy I think. Macro. Which they they never found really, but and um, photographs of suggested photographs of a white pigeon, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> all that. It was in 1956 that so they actually returned all these. I have photographs of the trunks to uh, Serbia, but they kept them for that long because they they thought he had something dangerous that they wanted to have. Wow. And so, and and eventually his belongings, his effects, his remains were brought back to his homeland. There's a, a museum in Belgrade. Isn't it interesting that, you know, you're not seeing Edison named after new startup companies, but you are finding Tesla named after. Yeah, Is that because he's a folk hero but or Edison would sue? What you see are hundreds of Edison elementary schools. You don't ah, see Tesla okay. elementary schools. They're That's all true. Edison. And that to me is very interesting. So in, yeah. in, in, in the minute we have left, yeah. um, the, the, the parallels between Payne and Tesla – Pretty interesting when you think about yes. it now. Uh, what, what stands out to you? I think well, well, two things. One is the, the, the determination to to um, speak what you see as the truth, whatever the consequences. Mm-hmm. And the second is this connection to nature. That mm-hmm. Tesla said the job of a scientist is is like a farmer to mm-hmm. to cultivate from nature. Mm-hmm. The, and uh, Payne was a deist. Beautiful. Yeah, Fascinating. You know, I have I have recorded things in the Tesla building in, in New York. Right. Well, we're out of time. Ian Ruskin, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. We I, look I forward love, to seeing We, we love and look forward to seeing the Tesla show. Oh. And good luck with the Payne uh, performances overseas. That sounds yes. terrific. Oh, yeah. That should be They're going to be incredible. And yeah. thanks, thanks for keeping this, these brilliant people alive. I think uh, they're more than relevant. Ah, we'll keep doing the show. And, <laughs> and, if right. I, and when I'm going to do a gig in, of Tesla, I, I'll come back and tell you about oh, it. Please do. Yeah, that would be cool. Please do. But th- that, was, that was fun. Bravo. Thank you. All right, <laughs> Phil, we'll see you next week. Oh, I hope so. Sexy uh, Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. washed away. And Phil Proctor. Phil see Proctor you next week. Ted Bonnet. <laughs>